You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Melissa Lee. Uh, in today for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Markets unable to build on yesterday's massive post-CPI turnaround. If there's more volatility ahead, how can you play it? And chaos continuing in the UK. The new prime minister firing her head of the Treasury and reversing course on much of her big tax cut plan will assess the risk of Britain's problems spreading globally. Plus, retail sales today showing inflation is starting to take its toll. Will rising prices eat into holiday spending? playing Grinch for the retailers. A look at the names that should do well, even in a downturn. That is all coming up. But of course, we begin today with the markets, and it is another roller coaster day here in the markets. The story really being driven by the move that we've seen in the 10-year Treasury yield. Just when we saw that 10-year yield pierce above 4%, that's when we hit the lows of the session. For the S&P 500 right now, we're just about 13 points off the low. 3608 is our level right now, down by 1.7%. The Nasdaq is down 233 points, or 2.2%. For more on all of this, let's get to Mike Santoli live at the New York Stock Exchange. Mike. Yeah, Melissa. Well, we're down a little less than 1% for the week in the S&P 500, up half a percent for the month. Seems like not much is going on, right? Well, obviously, we know that's really not been the case. This week, we did see a plunge to a new bear market low in the S&P 500. Yesterday morning, 3,500, halfway uh, between the March 2020 COVID low and the all-time peak, that seemed to be of some kind of significance. And now I think right now what's going on is the search for clues as to whether, in fact, there's anything consequential about that rebound we got yesterday. We're giving up a good portion of it today. Fewer individual stocks made a new low yesterday and the day before, even as the index did. That's maybe a thin read. Also, you could point out that since mid-June to now, on a net basis, S&P hasn't really given up that much, even though the Fed's remained hawkish and yields uh, have not really been friendly. I think the bigger question, though, is are we going to see another one of these patterns where a relief rally, because the U.S. dollar index has managed to come in, is allowed to go for several percent, and then you have Fed speakers, as we've already heard, really not give an inch on what they feel they need to do in terms of rates in restraining inflation and whatever the damage is going to be to the economy. Banks a bright spot, not just because of the numbers today. They've actually been kind of perking up relative to the S&P for a while right now, as have industrials. That's not a terrible story in terms of the cyclical outlook, but it's it's not maybe enough to hold uh, really onto too tightly, Melissa, when we do see so many of the leading indicators of a potential recession kind of coming into line. Yep. Mike, thank you. Mike Santoli. Let's get more on the markets with Chris Murphy. He's the co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. Chris, great to have you with us. And I'm wondering what if you if you assign any significance to yesterday's rally, given especially today's uh, basic reversal of yesterday. Yeah, I think a couple things to take away. Thanks, Melissa, from uh, the rally yesterday is the importance of the setup, at least for near-term trading. You know, if we rewind back to the previous CPI number, uh, we rallied about 5% in five days on optimism. We're finally going to see that number roll over. Uh, and then uh, just yesterday, we had basically sold off about 5 or 6% in five or six days leading into to this number, uh, you know, the, the sell-off yesterday, the bad CPI number. So we got that initial move lower, uh, but, you know, we were just getting relentless calls from our clients. How come volatility is not higher? How come the VIX is not higher? And then we started seeing investors sell their puts to close, and that definitely led to some of the market bounce we saw yesterday. Yeah, it did feel like once once we pierced 3,500, that was sort of like the, the signal to go higher for the markets, Chris. Um, in terms of looking ahead, uh, it, November 4th is, is what you say options traders are really looking towards in terms of expiration. I mean, that, that encompasses a whole lot of um, volatility sort of events. Yes, exactly. And kind of like I mentioned, 
You know, a lot of put protection was sold to close, especially yesterday, uh, the near-term stuff in October. And then we started to look for, well, where's everybody focusing next? We saw a lot of hedges, a lot of trades go up in the November 4th weekly options. Now, why is that? Obviously, you have the FOMC, and all of a sudden, after the CPI number, there's a, a pricing and a chance of 100 basis points. You know, it's 15% or so, but that's still going to add some uncertainty. You have 80% of the S&P uh, components by market cap reporting by November 4th, and then you cap it off with another NFP number on uh, Friday. So that's the clear focus for uh, options trading in the near term for exposure to macro. After that, though, Chris, is there any sort of seasonality creeping into how people are looking toward the end of the year after we clear uh, so those big, big events? I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you look historically, uh, the last four, uh, three months of the year are strong seasonably, particularly when there's uh, midterm elections. Uh, it back tests very well. Uh, the only uh, issue, kind of like what Mike alluded to uh, just before, is you know a lot of these back tests don't take into account a Fed that you know you know dampers the mood every time the market rallies a little bit. So sure, the seasonality definitely back tests really well and. You know, given the sentiment and given the, the light positioning and everything else, we could absolutely be due for a pretty good sized bear market bounce, which would follow along with that seasonality. Uh, but the major difference is obviously always going to be the Fed. Are there certain sectors, Chris, that's attracting more options activity in terms of positioning? I mean, the financials would have been, you know, a really interesting one to take a look at going into all of today's numbers. But going into earnings season, are there ones where people are really positioning heavily around? Um, you know, we're hoping to start seeing a little bit more single stock focus. There's been mm -hmm. so much high correlation and focusing on the macro. Um, and if anything, if I were to highlight, you know, uh, maybe Pepsi, we saw an overwriter today after earnings. It seems like people are maybe waiting to see what happens with the earnings and then take advantage of the move. I mean, even if you look over the last two weeks, we're kind of in a, a little bit of a range. We're bouncing all around. So maybe investors are looking to uh, take advantage of that range uh, from, from selling some volatility. Now, if you're going to go outside of the United States, we are seeing pretty consistent call buying and bullish flow in China-related stocks. And hmm. you know, everyone's always looking for a bottom there. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, I was just taking a look at K-Web. A lot of those names are, are sitting at new lows today, Chris. Are you seeing activity around that? I mean, is, is the activity indicating that there's optimism surrounding these names? Because the timing is interesting in terms of, you know, the possible pivot away by Beijing, away from zero COVID, as well as the, uh, the, the People's Congress convening. So I would describe it as I don't want to miss the eventual bounce, not really optimism in it mm. there being a low. And the reason I say that is almost exclusively call buying where you get exposure to the upside without more downside. We're not seeing a lot of put selling. I would probably take a little bit more of a note of some aggressive put selling in China. We're not seeing that. When you said that you, you're not seeing as much single stock activity, that sort of um, surprised me just a little bit, Chris. And I'm just wondering what, what in your view that indicates to you in terms of what kind of market we are trading in. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a high correlation market. You know, you might have a a wonderful single stock idea and then the treasury yields go above 4%. And it doesn't matter. So it's 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 somewhat frustrating to be a single stock trader in a high correlation environment. We're hoping as investors, I would think, uh, for correlations to start to come in as we focus on earnings season. We finally got this CPI number out of the way. And I mentioned, you know, we have about two weeks until the FOMC and we have a lot of earnings to come up. So if we can get a little bit less correlation and get rewarded for our stock picks instead of things all moving together, 
you know, that would probably be less frustrating. I would also point out to um, ETF volume as a total percentage of volume that traded yesterday uh, from our measurements was at a five-year high. So investors are focusing on the sectors and the ETFs and not really picking stocks. All right, Chris, thanks for the insights. Appreciate it. Chris Murphy of Susquehanna. Well, we've gotten what options uh, are telling us about market direction. How should you position? Our next guest says small caps look particularly attractive right now, especially for long-term investors. Let's bring in Nancy Pryle, the co-CEO of Essex Investment Management. Nancy, great to have you with us. Um, this Thank is you. sort of the, the playbook. I mean, if you're in a rising inflation, rising rate, rising dollar environment, small caps historically have done well. Um, have we seen that sort of play out in, in which sectors in particular, or I should say subsectors within small caps, do you like the best for this environment? So we are starting to see that play out, certainly in the third quarter, which was by all accounts a very frustrating, very difficult quarter for all areas of the markets. We saw small caps and interestingly, even micro caps outperform on a relative basis. And small cap growth and micro cap growth were two of the only sectors that were actually up a little bit um, for the quarter. One of the other factors with small caps here is not only are the stocks very attractively valued, selling at valuations of 10 times or less in aggregate um, on next year's earnings, and admittedly those earnings might be too high, but that's still a great valuation. We have also seen historically that it's not really rising inflation so much as inflation that is high, leveling out, and starting to come down, which is the scenario that we think we are entering today. Mm -hmm. So that bodes very well for the outlook for this very neglected sector of the market. And if, it's, as your previous guest just said, we're right, and we're going to go into a market that rewards individual stocks as opposed to macro themes, that will be even more tailwinds for the small cap sector. In terms of specific sectors, um, we are very, very bullish today on industrials. We believe that we are entering what we're calling a new industrial revolution, driven by the multiple factors of the energy transition, reshoring, um, friendshoring, nearshoring, all of the different kinds of shorings, the infrastructure rebuild that we're seeing in the United States, as well as an increase, a likely increase in defense spending in the U.S. And industrials are a large part of the benchmark and a large part of the universe in small cap mm -hmm. land and provide myriad opportunities for both growth and attractive valuations. How do you think, though, you mentioned the valuations in, uh, based on estimates, which yeah. might have to come down still. So how do you think about, how, you know, how much estimates might have to be have to come down and, and what are sort of your um, what's your North Star in terms of telling you that it needs to come down by X amount? I mean, when we're, go we're going to go through earnings season. So are there certain bellwethers that you're looking to? So what it's very tricky to know exactly how much estimates need to come down, of course. Um, we need to know how deep this recession is going to be or if, in fact, we can manage to just have a bumpy landing as opposed to an actual recession. What we look for, though, as we go into these recessionary or very slow growth periods is how do the stocks react to the inevitable disappointments? And um, it was a good day yesterday, but you can look at the reaction to applied materials earnings. When stocks start to react positively to bad news, that's a sign that the stocks are more than adequately discounted. The way we approach that is we stress test all of our estimates. We look at past recessionary periods and try to get a sense of the um, incremental and decremental margin. And we do this actually both on the up and the downside to get a sense of how much 
um, estimates need to fall. With the benchmark selling at something on the order of 10 times earnings, mm -hmm. if earnings come down 20%, that's still an attractive valuation. Mm. Okay, Nancy, great speaking with you. Your picks are AlphaTech, Acuity Brands, MRC, and Sterling Infrastructure. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Coming up, a fired finance minister, a fiscal policy U-turn, and a country in economic chaos. We're live in London with the latest on the U.K.'s financial crisis and the traders' take on treasuries with the country's 10-year gilt yield near its highest level since 2008. Plus, despite all the macro uncertainty, there is one segment in retail holding up particularly well, and it may surprise you. We'll tell you what it is and the names that could be well-positioned even in a downturn. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The UK's 10-year guild closed at the highs of today's session, capping off a whipsaw week for UK Treasuries after the Bank of England ended its emergency bond-buying program and Prime Minister Trust announced an unexpected fiscal U-turn. Wilfred Frost is at 10 Downing Street in London with the very latest. Hi, Wilf. Hey, Melissa. Great to hear from you again. As you said, a, a massive political crisis, uh, but all in the first 38 days of a new premiership. And uh, we'd already started to hear uh, of some of the policy U-turns. Added to that today, the prime minister forced to replace one of her most senior ministers and closest allies, the finance minister Kwasi Kwarteng, with Jeremy Hunt. Here is Prime Minister Truss earlier today. I want to deliver a low-tax high-wage, high-growth economy. It's what I was elected by my party to do. That mission remains, but it is clear that parts of our mini-budget went further and faster than markets were expecting. So the way we are delivering our mission right now has to change. We need to act now to reassure the markets of our fiscal discipline. The policy U-turn part of today, relatively small, delaying a corporate tax cut that she had planned. Much more significant is her hope that replacing the finance minister will reignite confidence uh, in her government and this country more broadly. And the reaction from markets today, at least, not resounding. The pound down, as you said, gilt yields uh, up, though the Bank of England special operation was uh, expiring today, as you already mentioned. So hard to judge today. What the Prime Minister needs to see over the next couple of weeks is those gilt yields start to come down and calm down. And she must hope that then inspires confidence of her own MPs, which has been severely tested in recent weeks. Melissa. You had mentioned how much it would save, Wilf, and that it's, it's a drop in the bucket, really. Um, and so I'm wondering if there is any thought that, that this crisis, particularly with UK pensions, has at all abated because of the shoring up of, of yields that we've seen, to, of gilts that we've seen today, or if it's just simply delayed in terms of whether or not the worst has actually passed? Well, of course, we haven't even seen gilt yields shore up much right. today. They're a little bit off their peak of uh, recent weeks, but still significantly elevated from uh, when Prime Minister Trust took office 38 days ago. Uh, clearly, the announcements, as you said, relatively small. I think the big hope is the replacement of the finance minister who was seen as cavalier by someone in Jeremy Hunt who came from the David Cameron, George Osborne wing of the party, was Theresa May's uh, foreign minister who's seen as more orthodox. He'll listen to economic experts and consult his cabinet uh, and lay the groundwork for any announcement and telegraph them in advance. Because as we all know, markets hate surprises. The outgoing uh, chancellor's uh, mini-budget a few weeks ago certainly took the market by surprise. All right. Wolf, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. 
Wilfred Frost for us at 10 Downing Street. For more on how this is all playing out in the bond markets, I'm joined by Andy Brenner, head of international fixed income at National Alliance Securities. Andy, great to have you with us. Uh, this seems like a positive first step in terms of um, you know, trying to right the ship over in the UK. I mean, Wilfred mentioned it's, it's only been 38 days. What an amazing 38 days it has been. In your mind, though, has any danger um, been averted? Thanks for having me, Melissa. No, I don't think any danger has been averted. In, in fact, if you look at how, how gilts traded uh, later today, at 6.30 this morning, the 30-year gilt was yielding 4.22. It went out at 4.80. I mean, that's almost 60 basis points. So I would say that uh, it's a thumbs down. Yes, it, it's good to get the finance minister out of there, and maybe things will get a little bit better. But by the Bank of England stepping away, and this already dramatically happening, I think the bond vigilantes are going to feast on, on the U.K. over the next couple of weeks. And you have to remember, two weeks from now, the U.K. is going to quantitative tightening. So I see nothing good coming out of the U.K. right now. What's your sense about positioning after, after we've heard this? Because we've also got this sort of data point. October 31st is when the new finance minister is going to lay out the medium-term plan. So we have this sort of window of a few weeks here in which to trade. How is the positioning, you know, in this period? Pension funds are still over their skis, mm -hmm. and we don't think they, even though they took a $150 billion loss in the last few weeks on derivative positions, we still don't think that they're, they're back to even, and we think that this crisis is going to continue. It may not start on Monday, but I see nothing that will abate this at this point in time. As you look out uh, in terms of the, the collateral damage, Andy, where do you look first? Where are you concerned? I mean, we had the Citigroup CEO on the conference call today saying that she's or they are watching collateral very closely amid the U.K. pensions situation. I'm not trying to, to, to peg city or point to city, but this is something that everybody is watching in terms of potential fallout. No question. I mean, we read a couple of city reports this morning, and they were pretty ugly as to what they think is going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised to see 30 years go back to 5%. In fact, I tried looking back as far as I could, and I've seen maybe 520, I wouldn't be surprised if 30-year if gilts got to 6%. At that point, I think they offer a tremendous value. All right, so wait till 6% on a 30-year gilt. Uh, Andy, great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Andy Brenner. Meantime, the 10-year yield here at home back above 4%, while the two-year sits at 4.5%. Our next guest says these levels are unsustainable for how to trade it. Let's bring in Jeff Kilberg. He is the founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, good to see you. Great to see you, Melissa. So are you in the camp that, that the 10-year yield is actually sort of capped? I think it is, Melissa. Let's just rewind for a second. And I appreciate the lens we were just looking through for the Bank of England. But to put it in context, the Bank of England intervened and bought about $15 billion worth of bonds. We've bought and we currently hold on our balance sheet $5.6 trillion worth of treasury. So as our $8.8 trillion balance sheet is really in a, in a movement here, think about what transpired in the 10-year note or the two-year note we'll get into as well. But the 10-year went from 1.5% to start the year to over 4%. That rubber band was stretched and the yields were compressed and intervened so much by the Federal Reserve. It was unorthodox, it was unnatural to see this supersonic 
move of rates normalizing, that's what's causing all the problems. I go back to where I cut my teeth, as you know, the Chicago mm -hmm. Board of Trade, the CME Group, and I utilize the bond leadership. And it is relevant today. Look what happened when we saw the sentiment number out of the University of Michigan. It moved the 10-year note from 4.8, excuse me, 3.84 up to over 4%. What happened to equities? We saw equity get sold off. So the bond leadership is in context. But when I talk about sustainability, Melissa, I don't think it's sustainable. And I think the Fed once again mismeasured. They thought they were going to have a lot of buyers lined up. If you look at the two-year note, the two-year note is a great way to look at the front end of the curve. It was at 35 basis points just 52 weeks ago. Yeah. Now, above 4.5%, Melissa, I think the Fed really mismeasured. They thought they were going to see buyers in the front end of the curve at 3%, 3.5%, 4%. We did see an institutional buyer come into the market yesterday, substantially buy the yield at 4.5%. And remember, of course, that yields are inversely related to the futures prices, but it's a fascinating concept right now. And I don't think it's sustainable for so many different reasons, but look at the expense that the Fed is enduring on their balance sheet. We're talking about, and this was the Congressional, Congressional Budget Office, it's not okay. Jeff Kilberg coming up with this statistic, Melissa, but we're talking about the interest on our new cost of interest going over $400 billion. And over the next 10 years, that's gonna vault over a trillion dollars. So my thesis of it not being sustainable brings the 10-year back down. It also brings the front end of the curve so, back down. And the Fed does have the tools to move that curve. So in a world in which the 10-year yield is capped, Jeff, is that a world in which equities go higher? Or is that a world in which there is stagflation or severe economic slowdown and the markets do not go higher? I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity. Last year, I banged the drum how many different times moving out of growth to value. We talked about the essential names, these blue chip tangible names. Now I really think you have opportunity as you saw the rates move in such a way. And I've been trading these markets and these futures for a long time. Never seen rates move like this, Melissa. So that presents an opportunity for technology, specifically semiconductors, which have been absolutely abused. Look at NVIDIA. Look at Broadcom. Look at even Intel, which you know arguably could be bought by AMD. But nonetheless, you're seeing a, an opportunity and a discount in all these rate sensitive names. And you're seeing that Uber sensitivity just in the depiction today when we saw the market, specific to the 10-year, move from 384 up about 4%, and all of a sudden technology got hit again. So I think this is the time between now and the midterm elections to really embrace the fact that there's some great quality companies in technology, in semiconductors, that you've seen all the bad news priced in, in my opinion. So I got to ask you as a, as a Treasury futures guy, um, so is there an opportunity in just trading a band? The 10-year yield hits whatever percent, you know, and, and you're out. Yes, absolutely. I think the, the front end of the curve, I think 4.5% is where we are. We'll see a cap out so you can buy those treasuries, which are inversely related. But also in the 10-year note, we need to see some type of catalyst for them to really abate. I'd like to see it get under 375. And technically, there's a lot of back and fill in those yields much lower. We could see by the end of the year, the 10-year under 3.5%. That's very counterintuitive wow. to what the Fed wants to do. But once that Fed, we don't need the Fed pivot. I know that word has been used at nauseum, Melissa. But just a Fed exhale or a Fed pause, that will move rates lower and that will let equities come back. And that may, is maybe, Mel, the midterm, late in the year election rally that a lot of people have been talking about historically for the last 85 years. Right. Jeff, thanks. Have a good weekend. Jeff Kilberg. Thank you. Coming up, transports are quietly outperforming the market this month. Are they the growth at a reasonable price or so-called GARP investors have been looking for? And speaking of transports, we're one month into the labor deal struck by railroads and unions, but not everyone's on board with it. We'll take a look at what could derail this agreement. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. American Express and Apple are your biggest losers. J.P. Morgan, United Health, Boeing, Verizon, the only stocks in the green. The exchange is back right after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. What another day of reversals here. Let's take a check in the markets right now. Firmly in the red across the board, the Dow had been as high as 390 points uh, at one point in the session. We're now down 310 or by more than 1%. The S&P 500 is just about six points off of session lows, down by 1.86%. And the Nasdaq down by 2.4% or 251 points. Banks are front and center after kicking off earnings season this morning. Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan City, all higher after beating estimates on the top and the bottom lines. Morgan Stanley having its worst day since June after posting a miss. Elsewhere, Kroger is set to buy rival grocer Albertsons for $34.10 a share, valuing the deal at nearly $25 billion. ACI shareholders would receive a special dividend of $6.85 a share when the deal closes, which partially explains why shares are well below that price right now. Regulatory worries are also top of mind for investors. Kroger and Albertsons are two of the largest uh, grocers in the United States, making up nearly 16% of market share, according to Numerator. Uh, Morgan Stanley's Simeon Gutman says the merger will likely undergo a lengthy review by regulators and may require divesting some stores. Kroger chairman and CEO Rodney McMullen will be on Closing Bell 3 p.m. Eastern today with much more on this deal. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. All right, uh, Melissa, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. Police say the shooter who killed five people in Raleigh, North Carolina, is a 15-year-old boy. The suspect has been hospitalized in critical condition. He evaded officers for hours before being cornered in a home and arrested. On the news uh, with Shep Smith tonight, more on the victims and the search for the shooter's motive. That's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern time. The Cleveland Browns quarterback, Deshaun Watson, facing another lawsuit for sexual misconduct. He is currently serving an 11-game suspension for alleged sexual assault. The new plaintiff alleges Watson pressured her into sexual activities in December 2020 during a massage therapy session in his hotel room. And Toys R Us is making a comeback just in time for the holiday season. The iconic toy store opening up in select Macy's across the country, giving a new group of young ones a chance to say hi to Jeffrey the Giraffe. Melissa, back to you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Tyler. Still ahead with bonds at multi-decade highs, the hunt for yield is on. Tim Seymour brings us three beaten up names he is buying right now. That is ahead. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is Fenway Summer Ventures partner Javier Saad. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Then I went to college in the Midwest. It opened my eyes to a world of possibility to pursue the American dream. Yet hurdles exist for many. But why is America such an amazing place? Hundreds of cultures, the most dynamic economy in the world. And oh, by the way, Hispanic success is American success. Soon to be 100 million people, trillions in GDP, digital, entrepreneurial, productive. Our heritage is part of the American story. I'm proud to be Puerto Rican, lucky to be an American. Welcome back. Stocks lower after yesterday's huge rally. And despite the outsized moves, the Dow is only is the only index still on pace for a weekly gain. Our next guest says while recession risks already priced in, credit and liquidity risks still loom. He's currently buying names or turning cash to investors. Joining us now, Tim Seymour. He's the CIO of Seymour Asset Management and, of course, a fast money trader. Tim, good to see you again. Of course. Um, How we are don't, you? Good, good. Since I saw you last night, um, we don't often talk about dividends <laughs> as being, um, you know, a, a primary driver. It's sort of like a nice kicker. So walk us through some of these names. Target and Walmart. These are ones that you've liked for a very long time here. 
And, and it's not about buying stocks for dividend yields. And obviously, people are excited to see you can get four and a quarter, four and a half percent in, in a short end U.S. Treasury. But but in fact, companies that have great balance sheets that have over time increased their payout ratios um, that have shown that they continue to uh, watch the balance sheet and have debt to equity levels either around two or lower. Walmart and Target certainly come in there. And that goes in, in kind of in concert with both retail sales and CPI this week. When, when we look in terms of uh, the pieces of both of those reports that were, were negative, I, I would say it was discretionary jumping out at you, whether it was auto, whether it was hardware, whether it was uh, appliances and electronics. Walmart is a food retailer, and, and I think their ability to control the top line. You don't think of Walmart as a div play. Uh, I think of it as a company that pays out 40% every year and is a 1.4 times debt to equity. Um, it, it's outperformed Target, and I think Target's metrics that I just talked about are even more impressive. Uh, and I think they've been growing their dividend about 25% over the last couple of years. So um, Walmart and, and Target fit that bill. But then as you get into the consumer staples companies, whether it's a Colgate, Palm Olive, or I mentioned Kimberly Clark, mm-hmm. um, Kimberly Clark's been under a lot of pressure because the pricing inputs uh, into some of their finished products have also gone up like everyone else's. I think we also saw some relief in that CPI number towards some of that goods inflation. And, and again, Kimberly Clark's a company that's got a uh, north of 60% payout ratio, pays a nice dividend yield, um, trades more or less in line with the market at a slight premium, is down substantially over the last six months. So um, these consumer staples trades at one time were big outperformers, were very expensive. I don't think that's the case right now. And I think you're going to see rotation back there. 20 times for Kimberly Kimberly Clark. So it is at a premium of the markets. And, and that's sort of the, the issue with a lot of these consumer staples companies. People are paying up and they're suffering through price increases and they're doing it gladly for their Huggies and Kleenex and, and all that. Um, of course. Of course. Because yes. you, you got, I mean, <laughs> what else are You're you going to use? I know you um, are. Yeah, we do yes. use Huggies, actually. Yes. Um, but but that it's still expensive. I mean, relative to itself, is it expensive? 20 times. Premium to the market seems like a lot. I don't I not not during this period. And again, we're still in a deceleration mode. And I I think we're at a place where actually these types of companies always uh, trade expensive to the market in this environment. And I I would say um, relative to where some of these stocks were six to nine months ago, I think this entire consumer staples uh, space trades cheap and 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 it's it should be trading at a premium to the market when you have companies that, again, um, the trade down, but also the consumer staples component. This is where the retail uh, community is focused. It's not on discretionary at this point, even though um, you should be building that list of the bulletproof consumer discretionary stocks like Nike and Lululemon that you want to pick your spots. Where is it that you want to own Nike? It might have been, you know, in those low 80s numbers that we saw last week. I don't think there's a problem buying it. But as we said at the top of the show, um, what concerns me is not recession having been priced in. What concerns me are the next phases of, of either some type of a credit crisis, even though the banks didn't really give us that today, um, but with the liquidity crisis that would follow. I, I want to sleep at night. I want to make allocations towards companies like the ones I mentioned that I know are well positioned here. If you think and if you're worried about the next stage after we actually are in an official recession, Tim, and that could be liquidity, that could be credit issues, why would you want to go with something like an applied materials, which is one of your quote unquote, bulletproof stocks, ones for the long run. I understand it's for the long run. But if if that is the period of time that we're in for potentially after a recession or, or, you know, coinciding with the recession, that doesn't seem like a good setup for something so cyclical. Well, when first of all, applied materials obviously is is the infrastructure and the bricks and mortar mm-hmm. around the semiconductor sector. And, and I think the secular trends around what we're going to be doing in this country and the capex and the investment 
in that sector. We, it's all we talk about, it seems like, these days. Um, I, I would also argue, if I looked at Taiwan Semi's numbers yesterday and, and where they were, uh, obviously it was a big day up for everybody, but that was real fundamental bottom-up. We got a chance to hear a company cutting back on cutbacks, warned clearly about where the inventory cycle is for semis. I, I think you're supposed to be buying some of these stocks six to nine months uh, before we actually see that turn. That, that's that's what investors should be finding in this moment. So, um, I, look, I can't handicap a credit crisis at this point and then what that might lead to liquidity. I want to find c- companies that I think are well positioned to, to, to battle through that. And, and again, the, the, I think where we are with regards to certain cycle semiconductors, especially the ones that are not in AI and, and you know, HPC in places where I think, uh, but more the brick and mortar in the semi space, we're working through inventories right now. A lot of these companies have already slowed down aggressively. And, and I think AMAT actually is well positioned between all of that. All right. Tim, thank you. I'll see you tonight on Fast Money at 5. See you tonight. At the NASDAQ. All right. Tim Seymour. Coming up, it's been a month since the railroad strike was avoided thanks to an 11th hour deal brokered by the White House, but it still has to clear the final hurdle. Union members, a check on where they stand and what's at stake next. Welcome back. It's been a month since the Biden administration helped broker a deal between railroads and the labor unions. But now that deal is in danger of being derailed. Kayla Tashi joins us now with that story. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Melissa. Labor leaders brokered that deal, averting a shutdown. But each of the 12 unions involved must get a majority of its workers to approve the deal to make it final. So far, six have voted to ratify it. A seventh union, representing about 11,000 workers, rejected it, citing the lack of paid leave in the proposal, which agreed to give job security for unpaid time off to get medical care. But that rejection may embolden the unions whose workers are still on the fence. In the next month, five more unions will bring the deal to a vote, including the two largest, representing about half of rail workers, on November 17th. That vote is just two days before the end of a so-called cooling off period, which would allow groups that have rejected the deal to strike after that date. Even one union refusing to work could create glitches in the system during the holiday shipping crush. Labor representatives could negotiate another extension with the industry as they try to get new deals in place. The Department of Labor has not responded to a request for comment on its outreach and what the administration is doing now to protect the deal. Melissa? Kayla, we know that one has voted it down. What happens with the others if they vote in favor of it? Does it still get ratified? What constitutes passage of this? Well, essentially, each union has the opportunity to then go back and negotiate its own terms. And if a union has rejected it, my understanding is that that union could strike once the cooling off period expires on November 19th. So that's not to say that no rail workers would show up on that date, but there could be some other unions, even unions that have approved the deal that say, well, if those workers aren't coming, that's going to make my job a headache. And so maybe we shouldn't show up for that day or for however long that lasts either. And so there could be sort of a cascading effect depending on the state of the deal and the state of the negotiations. Certainly the leaders of the union that rejected the deal are working to try to shore up support and to reach some sort of agreement with its workers but there's still a lot of uncertainty, Melissa, about what exactly will happen come mid-November. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Coming up, spending was flat in September as inflation takes a toll on consumers, but the best way to play a retail slowdown may not be the names you expect, where one analyst is seeing strength next. 
Welcome back to the exchange. Retail sales were flat in September as inflation hit consumer spending, but our next guest says you can find refuge from a weakening consumer in the high end. Joining us now is Oliver Chen, Managing Director at Cowan. Oliver, great to have you with us. Melissa, great being here. Um, there has always been the thought that wealthier investors are less, you know, I don't know, impacted by uh, economic headwinds, et cetera. They've got more cash, They've all of that. Um, at the same time, we are in an environment, Oliver, where um, everybody is facing sort of these same big macro questions. Um, rising rates certainly are, are sort of a, a different wrench in the picture. So why do you think the high end is going to hold up? Melissa, you're right. There's been a parade of promotions and inventories are very high. But what we're really seeing is the consumer going out again and very high quality brands such as Louis Vuitton, as well as Canada Goose and Tapestry and Handbags, they are achieving price increases. Note that a lot of Americans are traveling abroad to Europe. That's also benefiting the spending and fashion categories with great brand equity. It's still working. At the same time, Melissa, we really like value ideas too, such as grocery outlet, as well as Costco. Um, those will be great names to own in this difficult environment. And don't forget about really investing in your face and skincare and health and wellness. The pick there is Ulta. Right. For LVMH, if we can just walk through, Oliver, because um, you mentioned you know, Americans traveling abroad. And, and if you are an American, your wallet is filled with very strong dollars going over to Europe. You're going to maybe fill up on some Louis Vuitton bags. Um, that's sort of a one-off. That's sort of pull forward now of demand. And so how sustainable is that? And how big, well, of it, how big was that in, in the latest results? Yeah, mid to high single digit in terms of price increases, and they've been getting this very consistently. The other part of luxury goods is really being fashion relevant and merging magic and logic. And Louis Vuitton's one of the best brand builders in thinking about that and interjecting it into product. Handbag's an important category. It's a category that is important, especially as a consumer goes out again. Also, Louis Vuitton's the second biggest market cap company in Europe. It's very diversified. So about 20% of the business is Sephora. It's a global beauty concept. And if anyone shopped at Sephora, it's a really stellar treasure hunt, magical and also lots of fun. How has luxury fared in past recessions, Oliver? Because one could argue that, that we're maybe not in a recession at this point or at the very early stages of a recession. We haven't fully felt the impact of the Fed's rate hikes yet. And so I'm just wondering what, what sort of the the path of these stocks have been in the past. Yeah, the luxury companies are much better prepared coming out of 2008 in terms of managing variable expenses. Also, we're somewhat selective in terms of really liking brands that are appealing to Generation Z and millennials. So not all luxury are great ideas in our opinion. Uh, those are key things to watch and managing uh, these variable expense has been much better and healthier. Uh, what we are watching cautiously, optimistically, is housing, the valuation of real estate, also consumer sentiment, which has been waning. That's something to pay attention to. Analytically speaking, Melissa, there used to be a tight correlation of luxury goods to the S&P. Mm -hmm. That's not true anymore. Luxury goods have been doing very well for the past year as the consumer goes out again. And consumers going out should be a thesis for the next year uh, in our view. Right. I mean, during the pandemic, nobody was buying handbags because you didn't need to go anywhere. You, need to, you didn't need one to carry anything around. You like grocery outlet, Oliver, but I know that you cover Walmart and Target. And I wanted to get yeah. your quick take on, on how the early deal days, the early Black Friday, whatever you want to call it, there's specials online right now, how that is doing. 
It's certainly a lot of pressure. Uh, the Amazon Prime Day, in terms of happening again, mm -hmm. uh, exerts a lot of pressure in the whole industry. We are bullish on Target. Target's PE at 13 times versus Walmart's at 20 times is attractive to us, and we think they built a much better business model for the long term. They also flushed out a lot of inventory. So what you're seeing at Target is a lot of newness, and Target's a great place for seasonal events, such as Halloween, buying your candy there, and what they've been achieved with that, as well as merchandising and curbside pickup. So we have outperform ratings on both stocks. Um, Target executes very well in discretionary, has a balanced assortment. Walmart has a very impressive grocery business. It's about 56% of total. That adds a lot of stability. And both of these companies are competing very well in terms of discounts and offering value to the consumer, which is really more important than ever, given the reality of inflation and gas and anxiety at the low end. And what's your sense as to how much of the inventory that they've worked through? Do they still have a lot of it? Target was very aggressive and quick. Um, so what we're seeing in stores now, we were just there last week, is a lot of freshness and a lot of relevance in terms of what customers want now. Also food and essentials in the back to school categories, uh, well stocked at Target. We're encouraged with what we're seeing. All right, Oliver, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. O Oliver Chan of Cowan. Still ahead, investors on the hunt for GARP might want to check out this freight stock. Shares are at more than 5% over the past month, and it's trading at eight times forward PE. We'll reveal what it is and get the other names that could offer both growth and value next. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Want to get to one more thing before we go. Transport names outperforming the S&P 500 so far in Q4. Check out shares of trucker XPO. That was our mystery chart. Lower today, but up about 9% so far this month. Frank Holland joins us now with why transports could be the new GARP stocks. Frank. <laughs> hey there, Melissa. Well, this might be hard to believe, but Old Dominion Freight Lines, a trucking company, one of the top performing stocks in the NASDAQ 100 this quarter, shares up almost 6% as trucking and logistics players continue to outform the broader market and the mega cap tech ETF for the NASDAQ 100, the triple Qs. And while transports are not growth stocks, to be clear, they're just not. More and more, they're looking like growth at a reasonable price that so many investors are looking for. Since the second quarter, we've heard a lot of talk about a possible freight recession and falling freight rates. And then last month, we had that dire warning from the FedEx CEO that freight volumes were plummeting. We're going to obviously get more insight this month as some of the biggest name in transports, Knight Swift, J.B. Hunt, Old Dominion, and C.H. Robinson, they all report their earnings but in their first two fiscal quarters, they've reported revenue growth and EPS growth that's outpacing the triple Qs. If these stocks can maintain this level of growth, they would be growth at a reasonable price just by definition. All are trading at a lower four PE than the triple Qs that trade at 19 times. Knight Swift and J.B. Hunt, they report next week. Looks like Old Dominion might be ticking just above that. But still, that's that growth at a reasonable price a lot of people are looking for. The question is, are the volumes still there? Right. There are a lot of different kinds of transports, obviously, Frank, even in, within trucking. So I'm wondering, in terms of the valuations, I noticed that some had higher valuations than others. Is there sort of a, a common theme among the lower valuation ones versus the higher ones? So the lower valuations ones have more assets, for instance, and the other ones are more asset light? Well, yeah. For example, C.H. Robinson had a higher valuation. That is an asset light business. Mm -hmm. um, other businesses, it depends if you're a truckload, which is, means a company just says, hey, I'm going to fill up the whole truck or less than truckload, where uh, a, company's, a couple companies say, hey, let me put this pallet in there. Let me put that pallet in there. Generally, companies that are less than truckload, LTL, they have a higher valuation. It's more uh, of a cyclical business that can have more spikes when it comes to rates and things like that. Oh, so they can actually raise rates when they have to. 
That's well, a good thing. Well, that's because, yeah, you have people saying, yeah. hey, I want to get a load on there. Right now. I can't find a full truck. And I put mm-hmm. this load on your truck. And a lot of times that's what companies need to do to adjust to big disruptions in the freight market, like the ones we've seen over the past year. How is the labor shortage impacting these companies at this point? Well, there's still definitely a trucker shortage. Mm-hmm. Yesterday we had the CEO of Forward Air, another high-performing transport company on. He said there's probably about 100,000 truckers needed in the U.S. to fill the available spots. He believes over the next five years that's going to grow to 200,000. 100,000 truckers right now? Give or take, but 100,000. So truckers right now can command a high salary. Absolutely. He said he had to raise pay several times this year and also incentivize. And on top of that, you may not think about this when it comes to trucking. This might sound more white collar, but he said, hey, I had to make the work situation a lot better, add amenities (laughs) and just kind of talk to them. Like in the cabs. Well, not only in the cabs, but just the work conditions. You Uh want to make sure these drivers get home more often. That's Uh a big thing for a lot of truck drivers. They want to go home at night. Yeah. Frank, thanks. Frank Collins. That does it for The Exchange. I'll be back for Fast Money at 5 o'clock. We'll have a double dose of chart of the day. And here are your hints. Think gaming and a land far, far away. Tune in 5 p.m. Eastern for the big reveal. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.